When I wrote Love Story, I didn't know how it was going to end. And he says, love means never having to say you're sorry. I knew that what's going to happen. But then they fall in each other's arms and Oliver cries. I didn't have the slightest idea that was going to happen. And I burst into tears. Author Eric Siegel. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Well, happy Valentine's Day weekend. Yeah, I guess it's a whole weekend worth of Valentine's Day now. But here and now I've heard everything. I'd like to turn our attention to love today. And one of the best-known phrases in pop culture lexicon, love means never having to say you're sorry. It was a line, the most famous line perhaps, from Eric Siegel's 1970 best-selling book called Love Story. That best-selling book became one of the hottest movies of 1971, starring Ryan O'Neill and Ally McGraw as the star-crossed lovers. Oh, it brought tears to audiences all over the world. Fast forward a little over 20 years, I met Eric Siegel in the late 1980s. After he'd written several other books, in fact, the book we were talking about that day was sort of a medical thriller, uh, as opposed to a love story, but Eric Siegel was still both honored by and haunted by Love Story, as you're about to hear. So here now from 1988, Eric Siegel. When you approach a publisher with a name like Eric Siegel, with a history of love story in the class, does it make it easier or more difficult to sell a book like Doctors? Well, uh, what paved the way for Doctors was the class. What and, and, and the class marked a turning point in my career and a change of publishers. Because I was I had a publisher for for love story and uh, and my second and third novels and uh, each time i submitted a manuscript after love story they would say i didn't cry i said what what am i some kind of literary tear gas <laughs> what do, i mean do, do i you know there, there are a lot of books in which you don't cry gulliver's travels doesn't exactly uh, uh open the tear ducts and it's it's a pretty good book, and Tom Jones, it was and, Family and, Robinson, uh. and 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 you name it, uh, Dumbo, a little little Red Riding Hood. There are a lot of classics that that, that make it, and uh, the Odyssey doesn't make you cry. But I changed styles. I finally grew up. I I couldn't deal with just the private one to one relationship without a background. When I wrote The Class, which was the novel prior to Doctors and was a 600-page jobby, I wanted to talk about what it feels like to grow up because I had grown up. I had turned 45. Now I'm 50 and I've, I've seen and I think I've learned a lot and I know a little bit about the world of Doctors having studied it. And I want to write bigger books and deeper books and still keep that emotional element. And so it was tough for me to, in fact, the reason I have a new publisher is the publisher of Love Story said, no, this isn't like Love Story. I don't want to publish it. And, well, it, I'm happy to say they were wrong. And Doctors is the proof. Well, like some actors get stereotyped with a big, very big role that they are first in. Were you stereotyped by Love Story? Yeah, I was, I was the guy that had to make you cry. <laughs> Someone mentioned, were you also the first person to come up with the term preppy? Well, I didn't come up with the term, but I popularized it. Uh, well, it, I guess it, so. <laughs> yeah. Now, also, as you know, there's a book out now called Jennifer Fever. And Barbara Gordon was in here a few weeks ago, and she said the reason she called it that is because every time it seemed every time she met a young 
bimbo. She was named Jennifer. Because she was born in 1971. It's true. By far the most popular name of, of, of girl children born in the year 1971 was Jennifer by a load. And yesterday I was in New York, having just arrived from, from, from England, and I went to do a radio show that had a small audience, and I mean just a very small audience, studio audience, and two little girls came up to me and said, would you sign my napkin or my they didn't have the book or, or, or my menu and uh, I said what's your name and she said Jennifer each of them said Jennifer and I said when were you born she said yes I was born in 1971 <laughs> a lot of the, the world is full of 17 year olds named Jennifer <clears throat> well I tell you I, I will as soon as we're done taping here I will pull out of my wallet and show you the picture of my seven-year-old daughter named Jennifer <laughs> wow it's uh it, it that is what what impact a single book like that can have that does that go to your head well it, it it went to my heart not my head because first first uh the success of love story went to my head the subsequent attacks and then the ultimate rehabilitation went to my heart and i said that that was a nice thing to have done and i'm proud of it if i die tomorrow at least i've, I've left something on this earth Two hundred thousand jennifers running around the world <laughs> When you're writing and you reach the last page and you type the words, the end, how do you know it's the end? How do you know it's not time to go back now and re revise the whole thing? When, when do you know when to package it off and send it away? That's a, I, that is a question that I've longed to answer because it, it, it reveals something about writers that I don't think the public knows, at least, at least as far as this one writer is concerned. You don't know where the end is. When I wrote Love Story... I, I didn't know how it was going to end, but I came to a page where Jenny died. I knew that was going to happen. And he meets his father. I knew that was going to happen. And he says, love means ever having to say you're sorry. I knew that was going to happen. But then they fall in each other's arms and Oliver cries. I didn't have the slightest idea that was going to happen. And I wrote it. I said, my God, is this the end? Is, is, this, is this it? And I burst into tears. I really did. And that was the end. I didn't know it was going to happen. Likewise, in doctors, after all the, the attacks and rhapsodies about doctors, it boils down to a human story of, of a child that's going to live or die. And when they go to church at the end of the book, I didn't know how it was going to end. I didn't know what was going to happen in church. I just, I just wrote it, and it happened. And I, once again, I said, is this the end? Yeah, it must be the end. Wow. After Love Story, it was 130 pages. After Doctors, it was 800 pages. But it, I was going for 900, and suddenly it ended. That was the story, because the characters take over. They tell you when it's the end. Available at all, at all bookstores, currently number 10 on the bestseller list. Ooh. Well, in its first that. week of publication. Wow. Does that surprise you? Yeah. Really? But it gratifies me as well. Because uh, you know, there's some big boys out there like Michener and uh, and and Tom Clancy. And oh, but I, you're a big. I I, I can't. I don't consider anyone, myself a big boy. I can't imagine anyone being surprised though that the author of Love Story and the class and uh, so you, you are one of the. I can't imagine your one of your books not being a bestseller. Well, I, I can tell you what what has attracted people to my new book and made it a bestseller so quickly is the title, Doctors. Because everybody in the world is interested in doctors. Everybody in the world has got a doctor story, either a horror, mostly horror stories. A couple of praiseworthy stories. This doctor saved my pinky or something. Well, it's you, mostly this doctor ruined my life. You started out, though, to write a different kind of book than this turned out, didn't you? Yeah, I, 
I started in anger, and anger for all the horror shows I'd, I'd heard about, whether it's the doctor who, out of sheer venality, he'll take your gallbladder out because he needs a repair on his Mercedes, or the doctor who, who puts you under and decides while he's ex- doing a laparoscopy, he'll do a hysterectomy at the same time. And the, the, the power they arrogate to themselves, the power they take into their own hands to do what they want to do, to not tell you. But they don't tell you. I know somebody who went to a doctor for a cholesterol test. And the doctor said, I'm satisfied. And people are a little more hip nowadays. And they said, well, what are the numbers, doctor? And he said, that doesn't concern you. I just say you're okay. The, the, the doctors who play God, who have created a priesthood that worships themselves and to whom we offer a sacrifice each week in terms of money. And these people who hold themselves higher than the law because they, they don't want to answer to the law. Now, I was a very angry man. I, I said, i got to really get these doctors. I'm going to do a muckraking book and show all the rotten doctors in the world. And you know, the doctors that I interviewed, some of them said, I hope you show how rotten we doctors are. And lo and behold, 800 pages later, I'm writing a valentine. Why? Because I found that more doctors are committed than commit. They are really, and, and, and of course the committed ones are not the ones that are publicized. It's, it's the ones that do these horrible things that get engender malpractice suits. The guys that stay up all night holding a dying patient's hand and the patient doesn't die as a result. The healing touch, the people who care, the people who care so much that they become what has, has now been known as the wounded healer. The, or in Harvard medical terms, the impaired physician, the physician who has had a nervous breakdown because he cares so much, the, the physician who has turned to drugs a hundred times the national average. That, that's what the drug addiction is in the medical profession. Suicide. People who care that much that they commit suicide. Doctors have a twice the normal suicide rate in America. And what is worse Women doctors have twice the number of suicides as male doctors to show you how hard it is. And that's another thing I discovered in writing the book, that it's really rough on women physicians. You can say what you will about, you know, soon we're going to be 50-50 men and women. Not soon anyway, because the time setting for doctors is the 1960s. There were 5% women physicians. Now maybe there's 25%. But in Russia, there's 75%. I don't know whether what that means uh, in terms of having three quarters of all your doctors being women. But to be a woman doctor in America, especially a woman surgeon, for example, is a really hassling job. You get it not only from your patients, but from your fellow doctors. Didn't I also, hadn't I also heard somewhere along the line, too, that in the Soviet Union, the doctors don't enjoy the social status, the, the esteem, the, they're being put up on a pedestal as they do in this country? No, we have, we, 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 we have deified doctors. I don't know why. We've made, them, uh, we've made them into this priesthood. We've made them gods. After all, they're only, they're only people. And one of the things that makes the good doctors suffer is their patients look to them for salvation. And the ignorance of doctors, and I don't mean this pejoratively, the, how little the doctors know is amazing. I mean, there there is a story that's told of of uh, Hubert Humphrey, the late Hubert Humphrey, who was beloved in Washington. I mean, bipartisanally, he was a really beloved individual, and he was dying of slowly but painfully of a cancer. And a lot of his friends, among them Joe Califano, 
called up the National Institutes of Health and the, the, the big the head honcho there and said, hey, look, this is, this is a great human being. Can't you guys do anything? And the director, then director of the National Institute of Health said, Joe, you don't understand something. And, and Califano said, what? He said, how little we know. And that's the truth about doctors. And don't good doctors know how little they know? Yeah, and that's the secret they have to live with. They can't say to their patients, I don't know. They, they break it a little gently. But the truth is that the terrible secret that weighs on, upon, heavy upon doctors' shoulders that is answered either by arrogance, pretending to know all, or by nervous breakdown because they don't know anything, uh, is the fact that the doctors can do so little. Now, we've got some physicians who are novelists themselves. We have Robin Cook. Uh, Steve Pachenik has his new book, uh, Blood Heat. They're physicians. You are not a physician. Uh, I feel like one after all this research, I can tell you. <laughs> but yet your book uh, will probably tell us as much about the medical profession as any Robin Cook thriller. That's because doctors can't look at themselves. I, uh, I was able to look at doctors as a non-doctor, and that was a big advantage. I, I wore a white coat. It said Dr. Siegel, but of course I have a PhD in literature and not in, in medicine. But I still was able to, to, to observe doctors and it, I, I naturally interviewed a lot of doctors and I had doctors go over my uh, manuscript to see that I had the facts right. I was writing a novel, but still I didn't want to have gross errors. And what, I found something very curious happened when doctors read the manuscript for errors. They picked out the medical errors and were very happy to do so. And I think doctors, as a novelist, pretty correct uh, picture of, of, of uh, even the doctors said so. But once in a while, the doctors, even the most broad-minded of doctors, said, you can't say this. And it was usually the way doctors talked. It was doctors' behavior, not as a physician, but as a human being. For example, the language they use in, in the anatomy lab. He said, you can't talk this way about guys. Nobody uses this kind of language. And everybody knows that people are so nervous in the anatomy class that they curse and they call their corpse all, all kinds of different names and, and, and anything but uh, the late departed cadaver on my table, the once Holy Spirit uh, in him now fled his mortal body and all that kind of stuff. The disrespect. There's a scene in Doctors where there's a basketball game but it's called the malpractice cup between the Harvard Law School and the Harvard Medical School. And one of the players gets injured, the star player gets injured, and I have in, in my novel the dean of Harvard Medical School giving him a shot of uh, some stuff that they usually give racehorses, which is doesn't kill him, but still, uh, you know, is not exactly cricket. And one of the doctors who was vetting and checking my book said, you can't have the dean of the medical school give the injection. It's got to be an assistant dean. <laughs> I didn't follow that bit of advice. <laughs> if there is anyone who is not attracted to your book, either by your name or the title, they are certainly going to be hooked by the first line, which is one this guy. It's got to be one of, one of the, the the best first lines. Barney Livingston was the first boy in Brooklyn to see Laura Castellano naked. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you see you, you, you mentioned that because doctors is. Also, a love story, and I hope an, a, a very unusual one that's never that exists but has never been put into print. The idea of people being a man and a woman being platonic friends for forty years and finally discovering one night that they've been in love with each other as well as been platonic friends for all these years, and it's happened more often than you think. Except nobody wants to write a book about it because you have to cover forty years, and that's why Doctors is eight hundred pages long. Eric Siegel died at age 72 in 2010.
Now, you can find easy Amazon links to Eric Siegel's books and the movie Love Story at our website, heardeverything.com. Have you subscribed yet to Now I've Heard Everything? We post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. In fact, if there's a platform you enjoy that you can't find us on, let me know. My email address is just bill at heardeverything.com. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, it's President's Day. So we'll be talking about one of America's most iconic presidents, Honest Abe himself, Abe Lincoln, with presidential historian, Doris Kearns Goodwin. In Lincoln's hands, the qualities that we normally associate with decency, with a good person, sensitivity and honesty and empathy and kindness, became great political resources. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.